maybe we're always a surprise to ourselves. Maybe we're so used to being ourselves from the inside out that when it's coming from the outside in, it's still a shock. I just returned a couple of weeks ago from uh, Northern Ireland where I was born. I was born in uh, Belfast, a, uh, a place that has the dubious distinction of having religious prejudice and violence for 300 years. It, it has a, a built-in mechanism for renewal every year on a certain date. There are parades and celebrations uh, celebrating the side that's, that won is celebrating that they won and the side that lost uh, feels sore about losing. Um, as I was thinking about this today, I, I was thinking... Um, In some ways, um, it's a fortuitous situation because uh, the kind of difficulty and conflict gets held up as obviously inappropriate to maybe from a distance. It's obviously inappropriate. Yeah. And yet when you live there, it doesn't... It, uh, what do you do? You try to have a regular life. This is so-called normal. And I think of our society here in the States, uh, and you know, if you look at the statistics, you know, the amount of people incarcerated, the uh, numbers of homicide per capita, or per thousand of capita, um, the poverty rates, um, it's different, but in another way, there's, there's also some malaise in this society, too. And also, um, I think that outer world has a, an analogy in our inner world, that, that each of us endeavors to create something called normal you, inside of us, within our life, some coping mechanism that endeavors to adjust and adapt and find some harmony of, of continuity in our experience. Uh, and all this, you know, points at the first noble truth, you know, in its different dimensions, from the, the gross pain of uh, bombing and violence and, and to the subtle malaise of each of us trying to discover how to generate peace within us. So for several years now, I've been going to Northern Ireland and doing different things, uh, leading peace retreats where a number of people would come together and have what you might expect a Buddhist would get up to, you know, meditation, quiet, counseling, uh, peace walks. Um, and then in addition to that, um, in the last couple of years, meeting with 
um, people in society. Everything from this time I met with the Lord Mayor of Belfast, um, paramilitaries, uh, maybe that's what they're called there. Are you familiar with the word paramilitary? Is that in Northern? Yeah. It's someone who's involved in a radical organization. Um, to politicians. Um, what I've discovered that really helps in, in is, is something that helps in our own inner world as well as in any situation, which is to discover how to listen, how, how to be available for what's going on. And as a, an example of that, I'd like to talk about my experience with one person. This person um, embarked on, as he said, uh, his idealism led him to the idea that to promote what he wanted to promote, he should um, literally kill the people who were in opposition to it. And so he set about doing that. And he did that with dedication and determination and devotion. Uh, which reminded me of, um, there's, a, there's a wonderful uh, story in, in the early sutras where, where this ferocious murderer, I can't remember his name right now, but what he did was he made a, when he killed people, he made a ring of their fingers, I think. Angulamala. Angulamala. Angula Thank you. And um, and then, much to his uh, good fortune, he met up with Shakyamuni, and the very same qualities of determination and dedication and devotion were turned were addressed to a different activity. And this is an important teaching because um, the Dharma is not asking us to cut off our passionate engagement in our life. It's just asking us to direct it effectively towards peace rather than uh, destruction. And so this person uh, did this for several years, and then he was uh, arrested and put in prison. Uh, and we, we were talking, and he's now a peace worker. And, and uh, in fact, when I met him, he had just returned from uh, Sri Lanka where he'd been uh, coaching the Tamil Tigers on a peace process, how to negotiate a settlement, which he'd helped do in Northern Ireland. And so I asked him, well, what changed? You know, what changed when you were in prison? He was in prison for quite a while, about 14 years. And um, about 10 years into his prison sentence, 
which was very long because he was convicted for several murders. Somehow or another, he hit on a process of inquiry. Himself and another one, another person of his um, allegiance, hit on a process of starting to ask each other, what is the point of life? And, you know, they didn't have much else to do, right? They were, <laughs> they were lifers. They were, they were there for uh, as long as they were going to live. So they started to ask each other, what was the point of life? And what's the most important thing? And, and, and this was just something they dreamt up. But in the process, um, something started to happen for him, some kind of shift. As he said, he started to feel free. He started to feel light. He started, to, and in the process, he started to see that his determined commitment to violence um, didn't hold up to careful scrutiny. That's, that really, it didn't make sense. So as I thought about it when I heard that story and I think about it now is um, how do we stimulate that questioning within us? How far do we have to go before we're willing to look radically and deeply at what's going on in our lives? What, what experience is necessary for each of us to look that radically at who we are? So he went through this process um, of deep questioning. He said at a certain point, he started to feel light like he'd set something down, like he'd let go of something. That something that had a hold on him or that he was holding on to was released. And as he followed that with his heart and his mind, uh, what made sense was to promote peace. And then in 1994, there was a, um, a peace accord in Northern Ireland, and one of the, the terms of the peace accord was that uh, all the paramilitaries would be considered political prisoners, and since there was a peace accord, they would be released. And uh, he was one of the people who was released. And he set about dedicating his life to making peace actually has started a political party and is now a, a politician. I had one remarkable day where I talked to five politicians and every one of them had been a paramilitary and had <laughs> served extensive jail sentences. Amazingly, it would, be, it's, it would be fair to say that every one of them had murdered other people.
And amazingly, every one of them was now receptive to the Dharma. So what suffering does each of us have to go through to stimulate inquiry? What's going on? What is the most important thing? How come I'm doing what I'm doing? What is it in my life that I'm dedicated to? What do I put my energy into? I remember thinking after September 11th, you know, as first of all, we had this incredible trauma, you know, that was kept being presented and presented and presented and presented. And then, and then talk shows, talking about it, analyzing it, uh, concluding, uh, conjecturing. And then at some point, something called entertainment came back in, you know, the sports scores, the latest movies. So in some ways, Very, in a very human and vulnerable way, we feel like we need relief from our suffering. So, so if the first noble truth is suffering, maybe the response to that is to find a way to avoid it. To find a way to step back or step over that very disturbing experience. To create our internal psychological defenses. To create our habits of behavior. To create our societal habits that set us, give us some immunity from how this life is. That it is impermanent and unpredictable. And as such, it keeps changing in ways that we're never quite sure of what's going to happen. And that we respond to that to fix that, to solve that, resolve that, alleviate that. So what the Dharma says is that it is possible to make peace. And maybe the, maybe the challenge of practice is how deeply and completely can we entertain that notion. It is possible to meet our lives just the way they are and make peace with them. It is possible to sit and pay attention and be aware and live out exactly what's happening. 
in living it out, discovering something about peace and peacemaking. So as I talked to this person, and we talked a long time, we actually talked late into the night, and we talked about, well, what is it? What is it that allows any human being to take that radical, courageous step? And I would say to you, this is a very personal and intimate exchange that we can have with ourselves. And it's also the request of practice. How do I take the step towards peace and not a step that's towards insulating from what is or just learning to put up with what is? And usually in our human lives, you know, we live our life and we adjust and then something comes along of a more disruptive nature and we respond with heightened attention and effort. And then hopefully the level of discomfort decreases and then we return to what we call normal. So sometimes it's said in the world of Buddhism that practice is the practice of fearlessness. That the gift of the Dharma is the gift of fearlessness. That's what it is. Sometimes it's said that the teaching of the first noble truth is to cultivate a willingness to experience directly what's going on. In other words, to suffer. So when we watch ourselves sit, you know, each time we sit down to meditate, the request we bring up in the practice of awareness is how to be completely present for what is. And then we start to see the preoccupations, the distractions, the, the sinking energy that takes us away. One way we can think about these is these are, are attempts to alleviate suffering. What's the attraction of reliving uh, difficult exchanges? Why are we compelled to do that? You know, you have a difficult exchange with someone and then you find yourself later in the day reliving it. Oh, I should have said that or I could have said this. We want to bring resolution. We want to bring peace. 
and we engage in behavior that cuts off some experience. Somehow can we separate from suffering? Or sometimes in our meditation, uh, it's, it's as if consciousness starts to sink and our attentiveness blurs, swims around a little bit. Maybe we get sleepy. So we numb out in our lives. You know, you know I'm, I'm very reluctant. You know, I, I do a lot of outreach, and I'm very reluctant to throw out, you know, statistics like never before in the history of mankind has there been as large a percentage of the population incarcerated as there is now in the United States. Is, is that or is that not amazing? Never before in the history of mankind. This magnificent bastion of democracy and, and enlightened existence. Somehow or another, we have also got this extraordinary statistic. What is it trying to tell us? So that's another element of our life, a numbing, a separating from. So what turns each one of us back towards what is? What, what is it that enables that process? So the third noble truth is peace is possible. It is possible for us to live in this wonderful society and to bring peace to it. It is possible to work with the enormous forces at play in our society. It's very interesting to go somewhere like Northern Ireland and listen to how they think about the United States. You know? They like to mention that the rate of homicide here in, in all the major cities is higher than it ever was in Northern Ireland at the height of conflict. I think it reflects our human tendency. I think it's easier for us to see um, difficulty and malaise and violence over there. And much more difficult and disturbing to consider how it is right in our own backyard or front yard.
And of course, as we practice awareness, we start to see that as an intimate personal experience. And this, of course, is a double-edged sword. Because as we start to see it as a personal experience, it quite literally starts to create the wish to stop it. That is the driving force of practice. Suffering can be overcome. That's a very promising notion. That's a very relevant notion when we start to see more exactly how we suffer. As long as we avoid seeing it, as long as we think somehow we can just step away from it, We step away from the potency of practice, its transformative potency. For me, the interesting point about this story was that this person thought he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. So in a way, there was no longer the option of stepping away. He was in it. He was there living with the brutal details of what he'd done. He, in fact, had a reputation of being a very violent person. And interestingly enough, his co-conspirator in this process of inquiry was the other main person on the loyalist side, who had a reputation for a lot of violence. And somehow, they, they set up this Socratic dialogue. How strange. Sangha. A Dharma friend. So he asked me, what can you offer? He said, I have connections to many people who've suffered. I have connections to many people who've committed horrendous acts of violence and who are still, some of whom who are still um, committed to that course of action. How would you tell them What do you have to offer and how would you communicate it? How do you tell yourself what the Dharma has to offer? How often do you tell yourself? How do you listen? What makes you most receptive? What are the thoughts, the feelings that communicate the request of practice to you? 
in the story of Shakyamuni awakening, there's an imagery where he tosses the bowl into the river and it goes upstream. So some ways, looking at suffering is an unnatural act. The natural act is to look away, is to avoid, is to separate. The unnatural act is to say, okay, this is the source of liberation. If there's a way to stop suffering, it is by looking directly at it and meeting it. Now, who would possibly do that unless they had some notion that the Dharma could create liberation from suffering? So how do you communicate that fact to yourself? How do you let it sink from your mind down into your heart? How do you let it become a part of how you live your life? How do you let it into your body, into your behavior, into your relationships? doesn't matter whether you're an ex-paramilitary from Northern Ireland or whether you live in Palo Alto or Russia or Brazil. I mean, isn't it all just the human condition? So probably everybody in this room has heard many, many wonderful teachings on the Dharma. But still, there's a certain kind of alchemy that's, that allows those teachings like seeds, like dharma seeds, that allows those dharma seeds to take root, to grow, and to blossom. Somehow, the dharma is asking to be digested, to become part of what we are. So how do we do it? So we read the teachings. We see the teachings of the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Seven Wings of Enlightenment, the Five Factors of Awakening. Yeah, they're wonderful. The Six Perfections. A friend of mine, a, a psychoanalyst, she wrote a book on uh, resilience. Her question was, how is it that some people can have a traumatic life, a traumatic childhood, and somehow come out of it a strong, healthy human being 
who's glad to be alive, who's resourceful and skillful. And some people come out of a similar kind of childhood broken, depleted. What is it? So she did research. And, and, and she interviewed a lot of people who had a similar kind of difficult background. And what you find was that those people who made it through had some truth. They had some dharma that inspired and guided and hardened them. There was one particular instance, one person who had a horrendous experience of domestic abuse and all sorts of things. And when she was in the seventh grade, her teacher said something to her. And for the next four years, that one teaching saw her through. And she took care of herself, she took care of her younger sister, and now she's a healthy person who's grateful to be alive, resourceful, resilient. So there's something very intimate there being held in front of us. So that's what I would say to you. What is the teaching that inspires you? What is the teaching that softens your belly, that softens your mind, that softens your heart? brings a certain kind of quiet strength, reassurance. How often do you turn to it? Once a year? Once an hour? This is what brings the Dharma alive, yeah? is to explore this alchemy. This is peacemaking. Yes, there's content. There's the, there's the magnificent ideas of the Dharma. But then there's the alchemy of receiving and digesting the Dharma. So what a wonderful question to ask me. Okay, how do you put this across? How do you take a group of people who feel like they've been mistreated to the point where their only alternative was violence? Who feel like they've suffered from the violence of others? How do you persuade them that something else is possible? None of us are any different. Each of us 
is asking for, is searching for that same persuasion. What is it that makes the Dharma more interesting and more inviting than the Disney Channel? This is the delightful uh, inquiry of our age. So, of course, what did I do? I suggested the very practices that we're all used to, that we take for granted. The settling this bringing forth presence, this willingness to open and discover. We discover that the Dharma is trustworthy through engaging it and discovering it. You know, this was Shakyamuni's teaching. Don't take my word for it. Check it out. That's what made this person such a powerful spokesperson. His own behavior displayed his commitment. That's what made Shakyamuni such a powerful person. His behavior displayed his commitment. So that's how we persuade ourselves through direct experience. And that's what I would say to you, whether it's offering incense, looking at the stars, bowing, reading sutras, whatever it is that turns your heart and your mind back into the proximity of hearing the Dharma, of receiving the Dharma, of digesting the Dharma. There's a friend of mine named Bo Lazov, and he runs a house for ex-prisoners. And every morning they form a circle, and they tell each other what their intention of the day is. is my intention of the day. And he would say, sometimes people say things as basic as to watch less television. To try to be less angry. So classically, the Dharma is kept alive by vow, by intention. And by returning 
to vow. And vow may be an articulated expression, or it may simply be a feeling, or it may simply be a yogic engagement. How do you make contact with what's going on? What returns you to it? What is it when you're sitting for 30 minutes or 40 minutes or all day? What is it that keeps returning you to now, to now, to breath, to experiencing the moment? What is that? This is the alchemy of digesting the Dharma. This is the alchemy of peacemaking. What is it that allows that voice to have authority in our lives? What is it that allows that voice to be louder than all the other voices in our lives? Not that it excludes them or denies them their validity. It's just that they don't drown out this fundamental voice of the Dharma. So in the end of the evening, we agreed that the next time I would go back, I would lead a sort of retreat, and he would provide the participants. (laughs) I'm not sure whether I'm delighted or terrified by that idea. (laughs) Maybe in the end... I just console myself, as, as I think it's, all any of us can do, is just to make our effort. You know, you, you make your effort, and then who knows? You know, you sit down to meditate, and who knows what's going to happen in the next 30 minutes? Who knows whether you're going to get swept away by your thoughts and your feelings? or whether something is going to settle and open and become clear. So I think that's all I wanted to say. Do we have questions and answers, or what time do we stop? Nine? We stop at nine. Okay. No, no. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, maybe if I took a few questions, if, if anyone has any. Please. How do you see this practice working in the Middle East? One thing that has occurred to me over the years in Northern Ireland is that every situation, the same way every person has their own particularities as to how they're going to hear and engage the Dharma, I think every situation does too. So, so, so when I went the first year, I did something. And then, as I kept going back, I started to move more towards listening and learning. 
that, and that seemed to be much more appropriate. So I, I think that's, to me, to my mind, that's the key. We go somewhere and we listen and we learn. How does this work in the Middle East? Well, who could possibly answer that except the people who live there? The people who experience the violence, the oppression. I mean, who's the expert in this? And, you know, I was in Dublin, in, in Ireland, uh, when the September 11th happened. And needless to say, it, it came up in the Dharma talks. And one woman who had experience, one woman said, we need names and addresses. We need to commute. This is not, this is about people. This is a people tragedy. We need names and addresses of the people who were affected directly. She said, I, I, there was a massive bomb in Northern Ireland in Oma where a lot of people were killed and some of her relatives were killed, this woman's relatives. And she received this enormous amount of letters directed to her from people she didn't know. And as she read these letters one after another and answered them, there was enormous grief and a healing. And so she learned this really helps. It really helps to receive letters. It never occurred to me. She knew something from direct experience. I, I think if we go with humility and an open heart to learn, I think the situation will teach us. You know? And then we can offer, you know, the classic teachings of of this heritage. But to me that's the first step. To listen, to bear witness. And suffering is a great teacher. When you were talking about Shakyamuni's admonition to us to check out the teachings, not to take anything at, because he said so, it occurred to me that the most important way to check this out is to put these things into practice, into action, mm -hmm. day by day, mm -hmm. and then be validated by our own results of our own experience every day. Yeah. That's the very powerful teacher, one of the very powerful teachers. Yeah for me, for many of us. Yeah, we completely agree. You're welcome. Uh, did this man say anything about how he made peace with his victims or family or past? Mm. What a great question. And mm. No, he didn't. Um, although I, I think as your question implies that would be an integral part I mean he did commit his life to peace making which makes me feel like that was the, the addressing that you know that he didn't simply stop the violence he, he went beyond that 
thank you very much.